The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So, a group of people spending an evening talking about joy and rapture. That sounds (laughs) relatively wholesome, but you know how it is. We could really use this evening to feel badly about ourselves or somehow in the cosmic buffet line, I forgot to take joy. (laughs) No, I took too much of this, too much of that, and totally forgot to put joy on the plate. Doesn't it seem that way sometimes? And it's really important when we do, like for the next week in particular, but just generally, that uh, we really open our mind for all seven of the qualities, these awakening qualities, that although we may not recognize them, it's not that they're not there, but it's more that we probably haven't learned to recognize them yet. There's something moving, something expressing itself in our hearts and minds, but we might not be able to sort of see it yet. And then what, it's one of the interesting things with these maps, like the seven factors of awakening, is when they do, in a sense, come online in the mind, sort of using the map, using the conceptual map, understands something, sees something, in terms of the actual activity of the mind, it's such a, a beautiful feeling because it's the, the way it has felt for myself is there's a sense that we're not alone, like somebody understood her mind, his mind, and expressed that, talked about it, and it lines up with what I'm seeing in my mind. And there's a really beautiful feeling of belonging in that, just in that really basic sense. These maps are more than just a teaching. I mean, I I don't want to be too magical about it, but I think, speaking from my own practice and so many other folks, that, uh, that there is something remarkable about some of these maps, how well they line up with experience. And so it's really, in terms of joy, rapture, the Pali word is piti, P-I-T-A, P-I-T-I, yes. Um, It's just not uncommon for people to have doubt about that or to be suspicious. But this is, uh, <clears throat> this is something we see in very ordinary states of mind and not always related to wholesome states. I mean, even being a little frightened, I'm sure you've noticed, like you're sort of moving about and something surprises you, and the energy of the mind immediately collects itself because of the surprise. You know, you hear something you didn't expect or something like that. And uh, that rapture, right, the mind is wrapped, it's held. So there's ordinary states of rapture that we know pretty well. Or just 
delight, even around ordinary sense pleasures, you know, getting the, your favorite dessert or, you know, being with your favorite friend you haven't seen in a while, you know, that collectedness of the heart and mind, it's like you're not distracted in those moments. One of those <laughs> sort of viral things you see, the videos you see sometimes is that we love to watch. Even watching them, we can get a little rapture. But it's like uh, the classic is somebody who was you know, in the armed services overseas, and they come home, and they're seeing their dog you know, for the first time in months or something like that. You know, and the dog can't get enough jumping all over the person. And, and we can sense, even from the story, we can sense how unified the mind is, how non-distracted the mind is, how the qualities of the mind, there's not greed, anger, and delusion in the mind, right? And the interesting thing, a lot of the times when we're experiencing joy, uh, in, in a somewhat neurotic way, we think we need to defend against it. So often our experience of joy has a kind of tightness to it. But when in those moments of delight, in those moments of rapture, realize, like wake up, realize you don't have to resist it. You can, whatever that energy is, you can just let it move. It doesn't have to be held in any way. It can be a really... Like train your mind to notice the movement of it, the flow of it. And that will help the, the joy deepen. Seeing it as a, a free movement really allows the rapture to mature. Not feeling like you have to do anything but be aware. But in being aware... It's not like you have to hold the object of joy to be aware of it, right? In the more subtle ways, when we're aware, it's more about resting in the space of awareness and letting objects freely express themselves. So you're letting the joy move, express itself. You're not like holding the joy like a jeweler, you know, holds the jewel so they can look at it. Initially, there's a little bit of that, like, okay, I'm sort of bringing the breath to the forefront of attention, and I'm, in a sense, holding that object there so I don't, you know, go back to my thinking or worrying or whatever else. But that was, that's just really in the initial states or, you know, moments of uh, helping the mind settle down. But then very quickly, the continuity of awareness is more about trusting there is the knowing mind, there is awareness, and the objects can come and go. And you can't, we can't really see an object if we're trying, you know, holding it. We have to like, that's why the continuity of awareness is so important, because we have to let what an object is, is it's coming and going. It's not really a thing to be known. It's a process, it's a flow, it's a movement. So I often talk about this fourth quality or this fourth factor of awakening joy as this is starting to come online to the awareness, the wisdom awareness in the mind. 
what's coming online, what's becoming more and more apparent because of the greater stability, balance of this wisdom awareness, this wise comprehension, right, is that everything's in motion. And the thing about everything being in motion is there's no ground, right? That's, it's like it opposes the idea of solidity, fixedness, right? So, and that's delightful. That's expansive. There's no weight, no psychic weight, no physical weight. There's an interesting sutta here. Let's see if I can get my hand on it. And I'll, I didn't put these up yet, but I will put them up um, tonight or tomorrow under the joy category. This is, uh, some of you know, the character Anatta Pindaka, who is a householder and uh, really uh, known as one of the more generous folks uh, at the time of the Buddha. And he came with a bunch of other lay followers. And uh, the Buddha said to them, Householder or householders, have you, you have provided the community of the monks and nuns with robes, alms, foods, lodging, medicinal uh, requisites for the sick. But you shouldn't rest content with that, with the thought we have provided the community with robes, food, lodging, and medicine. So you should train yourselves. Let's periodically enter and remain in seclusion and rapture. That's how you should train yourself. And, uh, of course, Ananda Pindaka and the other lay folks were delighted in that teaching. And the Buddha continued, When a disciple, when a practitioner enters and remains in seclusion and rapture, there are five possibilities that do not exist at that time. Right? So when the mind is secluded from its normal state, right? secluded from worrying about this, planning that, comparing thinking about, oh, the good merit I'll get from feeding all these monastics, then you can expect five possibilities. One, the pain and distress dependent on sensuality do not exist at that time. Right? So now this is something we can directly check out. If you felt at some point during the sit, or maybe even for sustained time, a kind of lightness and balance and... Uh, basic, simple joy, you, if you checked, you would notice that the pain and distress dependent on sensuality did not exist at that time. Right? So, for example, a lot of the time when we start our set, the physicality of the body doesn't feel good. Have you noticed? Right? It's like, my shoulder hurts, my knee hurts. But then, if you persist at your set, now this is true for a lot of seasoned meditators, at some point, you know, some number of minutes into the sit, all of a sudden the body's not a problem. It was definitely a problem in the first minutes of the sit. Now, do you have a different body later, or did that pain actually go away? But what the mind definitely knows now is it's not a problem. The pain and distress related to sensuality 
Same if you were a little sleepy or a little hungry or any of the other normal pain and distresses that come with being a being with a body, a central body, that can disappear. It, it retreats. The mind is secluded from the normal, ordinary torments of having a body, of wondering what's happening in the news even, those sorts of things, which could concern you right now, right? You know, we could be in a talk, but sort of wondering about this or wondering about that. But not when we're in that more joyful, rapturous state, when the mind is in that beautiful, simple balance. So that's one of the five things. Then he says, the pleasure and joy dependent on sensuality do not exist at that time. Right? So even like, uh, you know, just the ordinary joy of knowing that, you know, my partner loves me or my cat, I have this sweet cat or, you know, comfortable home or it's like those things don't come in. It's because the inner joy of rapture, of joy, is it sort of captures, in a sense, the mind's attention. So these other things that are just, let's say, vibrating at a, a more gross frequency, they can't get the mind's attention. In the same way, you know, if I pulled out a bunch of gold, you know, you wouldn't, and Meg dropped some quarters, you wouldn't look at the quarters. You'd be looking at all the gold coins that are sitting out here. Other stuff just wouldn't matter, wouldn't get the mind's attention. Even if, and another day, you know, walking down the street and you saw a bunch of quarters, you might feel really fortunate and, you know, pick them up and go get a cup of coffee or something like that. And then he goes on. <clears throat> the pain and distress dependent on what is unskillful do not exist at that time, right? Because one of the easiest ways to sort of purify your behavior to be somebody with a lot of integrity is to get into a relatively concentrated or settled state of mind because you're not scheming, you can't in that state of mind, scheme to take advantage of somebody to get even with your enemy or you know, what you'd like to do to a particular politician. Those thoughts, again, don't enter. They can't penetrate because the mind is connecting, absorbing, interested in something that's beautiful. And it's held in that connection, in that sort of awareness of the lightness of the flow so it's really protected. That's one of the things sometimes we say about joy is how protected the mind is. And then the pleasure and joy dependent on what is unskillful does not, does not exist at that time, right? Because there is some juiciness, like self-righteousness can be sort of juicy, pleasant in a way, but that doesn't enter in. And then the last, the fifth, is The pain and distress dependent on what is skillful does not exist at that time, right? So 
just to repeat, the pain and distress dependent on sensuality doesn't exist. The pleasure and joy dependent on sensuality doesn't exist. The pain, distress dependent on what is unskillful doesn't exist. The pleasure and joy dependent on what is unskillful doesn't exist. And the pain and distress dependent on what is skillful did not exist at that time. So because at this time, for example, when we're investigating different experiences, it can be really painful. And so one of the things we can do, this is like very important to understand, and we, most of us, I certainly did, learn the hard way, where we get into this groove where we think, like meditation practice is finding what's painful and looking at it, right? Now, there's definitely part of practice that is, you know, having instinct, having sensitivity for what's being held, what's painful, what's uneasy, and really looking at it with wisdom in a way that the mind realizes a non-attachment with that experience of what's difficult. But that can be exhausting, and the mind can sort of uh, get trapped in that mode. So the real dance is to be able to turn the mind towards joy, joyful states. And there's a dance between sort of, in a sense, unearthing whatever is there to unearth, feeling into whatever is there, asking for attention, whatever the next layer of unfinished business or, you know, the, it's really the karmic fruits of having been a frightened being, an angry being, a needy being, a dependent being for so many moments, years, lifetimes, who knows, but that stuff will percolate up, and, but that needs to be uh, balanced with times where the mind purposefully turns toward joy. And the way we turn towards joy is very natural. We, we remember the integrity of present moment awareness. We remember what a beautiful value that is in the mind. That the mind can be in the present moment and, and then when there's enough continuity of mindfulness, then something like comes online, which is, you could call this moral realm where the mind understands how to participate, how to affect how the mind itself is unfolding, right? And so now the mind can shape itself in a beautiful way. And it gets inspired by that capacity, that's the persistent energy. Yeah, if I just, if I'm really wholehearted, now I know we're not always here in the sense of have confidence that we can do this. But some of you might have regular confidence that, no, no, my mind knows how to shift into this beautiful place and then learn how to inhabit that space and how to be, in a sense, healed in that space where there's lightness, where there's joy, 
and let that joy allow the heart to sink into a more calm and tranquil space. And so seeing that the concentration, the stillness is a natural evolution or a natural unfolding from the joy. The Buddha makes this clear. We don't often hear this. I think this, I have a quote from Ayakema, um, a really well-known German nun. Yeah, here it is. Without joy, there is no concentration. We hardly ever hear this mentioned, though, the Buddha refer, though the Buddha refers to it often. He says that we can only meditate if we feel comfortable in body and mind, and we can only concentrate if the mind is joyful. If we really know why we are practicing and truly appreciate our own efforts, that understanding alone brings joy. And so in that continuity of awareness and that investigation, part of what that investigation is, right, it's, remember the basic definition of investigation is having some wisdom about cause and effect. So there's a lot of room for creativity. It doesn't mean you're just, you can bring themes in. This is where loving kindness practice comes in, compassion practice, or reflecting on the beautiful qualities of a saint or the Buddha or a a good friend who has a lot of beautiful qualities. You can bring those to mind. You can do gratitude practice. You can do forgiveness practice. Because there are a lot of things that the mind has learned that when I bring my attentions to this, something good gets set in motion. When I bring my attention, when I investigate this theme, when I hold it in mind, when I become devoted to it, persist with it, then something really beautiful happens. And we should have a couple tricks up our sleeve, not just one way, but we should have a handful of ways that the mind likes to do this. Feeling your heart, feeling the whole body, bringing different images to mind, recalling your sila. This is another sort of traditional way where you bring to mind the integrity you've had in your life. You don't bring to mind times when you were bad. You bring to mind times when you've been a good person and you acted with integrity. You acted in a fearless way, in a generous way. And you really tune into that because what you're bringing up is a, it's like a memory includes the seed. It's like a holographic seed of of that mind that was actually generous back even 20 years ago, right? So you bring the memory to mind and that expansive state, like it was really a memory of a moment when you were actually generous or actually kind, compassionate, whatever it was, then that seed, then, then the mind remembers. And so that's the seed of joy. And you can and that's just, you can investigate that and you can bring a real persistence to that investigation. And the whole thing just expands. And you can feel it like after a while you actually get to know the feeling of rapture and you can tune into it. Just like, a, like your skin is, I mean, there's a real, uh, even though it's a mind state, the body mirrors the mind in an obvious way and you just feel like the champagne bubbles throughout your body or kind of an electric feeling, or, or literally a bright quality in the mind and body, or a unified lightness 
of the body and mind. Now remember, initially it's going to be sort of faint and seemingly ordinary. But you have to overcome the habit of, well, this isn't special, right? Because, yeah, it's not special because you haven't done the work of recognizing it as a seed that just wants to be watered with this attention that appreciates it as a seed. You know, the sense that this could blossom into something really nice. This is already nice and could blossom, could develop, could expand into something really beautiful. So in a way, the first um, three qualities of mindfulness, continuity of mindfulness, investigating cause and effect, investigating the Dhamma, how it is, the conditional nature, right? And how to participate. And then given that we're not helpless, that we can participate in how the mind develops, then we have that beautiful energy of persistence, wholeheartedness, like I got something I can do with my mind. I can engage this, this alchemy of the mind becoming something worthy of appreciation. And then that expresses itself as this enlivening joy. Joyful interest, you could call it. right? And, and what that does, that joy, and we'll talk more about this next week, but it extinguishes a deeper neurotic level of anxiety and striving and doing, which expresses itself as a calming, a settling. Right? So that's the tranquility. That's the next factor we'll talk about next week. This is from, uh, now it's quite dated, but it's still a great book, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. I think it might have been the first book that Jack Hornfield, or the, maybe the first and only book that Jack Hornfield and Joseph Goldstein wrote together way back when, and I think in the maybe early 90s. And this, uh, it's, it's really a, a book a lot about the Buddhist, you know, the models the Buddha used to teach, including this chapter on the seven factors. So this is a couple paragraphs on rapture. <coughs> the quality of rapture is an ease and openness of mind that receives with interest every kind of circumstance. It asks, what do I have to learn? What do I have to learn from this new experience? Or says, wow, this is pretty intense, isn't it? To be in touch with this factor brings a capacity to look at our life with a playful yet caring interest and to say in difficulty, even this is something I can work with. This quality of openness is based on being willing to expand and see things from a larger perspective. At times we become weighed down with our lives and with our likes and dislikes and identification. Our melodramas seem very solid, real, and important. This quality of lightheartedness has been described as controlled folly by Don Juan. It is like looking at our small life on this earth from a great distance and from a great length of time. It is the recognition that all created things pass and that and what matters then is not so much, not, not how much we collect or how much we make or do, but how we live this short dance, how well we learn to love. 
Let us learn to live wisely even though life passes like a flash of summer lightning and, and a dream. There's a real interesting place, um, and this is where a lot of uh, meditators can get stuck in this place for a long time, because even if you, even if you have learned through your dedicated practice uh, what the continuity of awareness is, and have some sense, some confidence at this level of investigation that there's some, that there is a way to participate, a way to investigate. But there's this weight or this inertia of habit energy, and that's where the persistence, the energy factor comes in. We basically have to burn through habit energy. We need to, in a sense, rally a strength of committedness that's equal to whatever habit energy is driving the mind towards distraction or reactivity, right? And that's, that's surprising how difficult it can be to match, the, to sort of rally a kind of committedness, dedication with to match that force of habit. It's sort of an interesting, I mean, who knows about the stories that come down from the tradition, you know, because, you know, things get added on over the centuries and, you know, how human beings are, we tend to embellish things. So we don't really know what happened at the time of the Buddha, but one of the things that you see in the discourses a lot is uh, how many people just woke up being around the Buddha and, uh, you know, and then even, you know, people who are around really inspiring teachers, you, you can just sort of, part of the scene is like how powerful that can be to be around a really wise person, somebody who has a lot of power in their practice. And I think, you know, in, in speculating about like, well, why is that? Because we're also told, you know, teachers, the Buddha can't do the work for us. We have to, this mind itself has to have the insight. But I think what happens when we're around a really inspiring person, or for whatever reason, our mind has been really inspired, we're actually willing to make the effort that allows this important shift. It's a real, it's like the as it makes sense, you know, in any discipline, in any learning, there are these sort of choke points where people want to give up. And you have to sort of press through. You have to make just the right kind of persistent effort to break through whatever that oppositional force might be. And in this place, you know, really around distraction, now, we all know this because most of you have been practicing for years. And it's very easy, you know, as someone who's been practicing a long time, this is a very real issue in my practice. Each time I sit, and many times during each sit, this same dynamic arises, like because when the mind's one more time gotten lost in thought, right, we're beginning again. And... I find it so interesting, like, because I have a lot of confidence in the path, 
how the mind works, but it's very interesting to observe uh, like why the mind isn't why the mind isn't willing to make the effort. The, you know, it's like the the force of habit is very intelligent. And this is the interesting thing about delusion and the defilements or the hindrances. These very coherent patterns of mind, although they're completely impersonal, it isn't like there's an evil Mark, my evil twin that I live with, or maybe this is the evil twin. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but but it, it's very coherent, like how it adapts and adjusts right, to whatever sort of practice force plays its card with a coherent force of delusion will play its card based on that card, right? So there's this very interesting dynamic. And it really, one of the plays, it plays out in a number of places in practice, but one of the places right here about this quality of persistence. So I'm talking about where the mind is steady enough that it knows the difference between a wholesome way of relating, a wholesome way of being present and being distracted, thinking about this or worrying about that. It knows like, yeah, this is wholesome and that's not wholesome, that's not helping. I don't need to think about that now. So it knows the difference between right and wrong, but why am I doing this? We see this out in our daily life too, around addictive patterns, you know, like, I know I don't need to watch this, or I know I don't need to eat this, or do this, or say this about this person to my friend, but here I am. You know, and so where is that energy that says of restraint, or that energy of redirecting, let's do this. And this is where it's really nice to study joy because it gives a, a very useful barometer and feedback, you know, this sort of feedback for the energy of persistence. We feel like the more we've trained the mind to recognize the development of rapture, of lightness, of joyful interest, of that brightness, even it uh, has a very enlivening quality too. Like one of the expressions of that, like that sutta that I read where the pain and distress of sensuality doesn't afflict you. Right, so that like the posture tends to express no matter how old you are, it doesn't mean it's gonna, your body will look like a 25 year old yogi who can sit in the full lotus, but, but given how your body is, it will have a feeling of real, your sitting posture will have a feeling of real integrity that lightness allows the body to sort of express itself in a nice way. Whether you're in a chair or on the floor, it doesn't matter what your body is or how you're sitting. It's an internal sense of nobility, of composure. And you can start to feel it even in the beginning stages, that sense of wholeness and brightness and aliveness and lightness and unity, right? And that, you see how that feeds back into making the effort that's needed at that time, not giving up, starting over. Because the mind has confidence that 
it can set in motion something good. And it also, the mind appreciates that, you know, as I was mentioning before, sometimes a lot of difficulties coming up, or, and sometimes it's like external circumstances where we had a really difficult interaction earlier in the day and we said something stupid, and now our mind is somewhat haunted by not having been perfectly skillful. And then we we'll probably won't get in that vicinity because we need to find a way to feel into that. And, you know, so, or we have other stuff coming up that may be from long ago, but for whatever reason is starting to percolate up in our practice. So we appreciate that in those moments when the factors come together and we're at that place where there's some continuity of awareness and the mind really recognizes this potential to make right effort, we want to be, have things sort of lined up so we can take advantage of those moments and really apply, bring up the kind of effort that can really allow for this tripping point. I think I mentioned um, a couple weeks ago Saida Utejaniya's point about the seven factors where he says basically we're only doing mindfulness, investigation, and effort or energy because the others are a natural blossoming unfolding of those first three. And that's that tipping point because once the mind can find rapture, then it's basically getting out of the way, letting it sort of develop. Tranquility comes, stillness comes, equanimity just naturally unfolds. I mean, it, it helps to sort of know, for the mind to know the territory, to sort of allow that to unfold in a more graceful way. But there's the feedback mechanisms work more naturally after that point. Let me leave it here. There's always a lot more to say, but I want to say 15 minutes. It'd be nice for people to share your own experience with rapture and joy um, coming up in your practice. It's a way not to judge ourselves, but to be inspired by what people have experienced or, of course, any questions that you have. And uh, next week, uh, sharing in your small groups around this would be great. And especially how you've learned to feed and weaken the different factors. Like what do you pay attention to that supports the development of each of the factors? And I sent along in this email this afternoon the Ahara Sutta where the Buddha talks about feeding, strengthening each factor. And it's of course depends on what you're paying attention to. So you can take a look at that discourse. It's pretty straightforward. But questions or comments, sharings from your own practice. And it's nice if you'd be willing to share your name, too. Anybody want to start off? Yeah. All the way in the back. And Patrice, maybe turn the lights a little brighter, if you would. Um, I'm Edward. Um, so when we were trying to focus on joy, um, I was having trouble with a lot of distractions, a lot of memories coming into my Wait mind. Wait a sec. Would you check and make sure that's on and recording? Check one, two. Maybe it is on. Maybe it's just not on loud enough, yeah. Okay. Well, so I was having trouble. I was getting distracted a lot, and I started trying to... I did that reading, and so it said to try to imagine that there's the air all around you. It's all breath, and so I was imagining um, 
the breath around me was all like smiley face particles. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> as I breathed in, I imagined that the smiley faces were coming in my nose. And then I would breathe out the memories and the everything, the people that were popping up in my mind. So um, that did seem to help. Um, it was definitely took constant effort to always be getting rid of those memories and breathing in the joy. Um, it seemed to be a beneficial practice. Yeah, thanks. And uh, the, your point, one of the nice things about your point, too, is just the, the creativity that's needed in this place. And, it's, and like I mentioned earlier, it's really important that in this place, in terms of the continuity, in terms of feeding the stability of awareness and supporting the arising of joy, not to, not to impulsively investigate pain or what's difficult, which can be a habit among meditators. So some of you, some percentage of this room, you really need to hear this point. <laughs> yeah, because this is a place where yogis, practitioners get stuck. They have one move, look at the pain, look at what's difficult, look at what's unskillful. But we also want another move, I mean, just to be general, which is, to look at the smiley faces. <laughs> and, and by the way, the idea of smiling, not actually, but you can actually smile, but the idea of smiling is a good um, sort of check to see whether you're looking at negativity or you're looking at something that's beautiful, right? Is there a sense of an inner smile, whether it's you know, using the actual sort of image of a smiley face? or not. Yeah, thanks, Edwin. Who would like to share next? Yeah, Greta, please. Yeah, wait for the mic, though. So I, I wonder if I'm a one-move yogi, then. Yeah. <laughs> go, go like this, yeah. OK. Um, I'm, I r- remain concerned and committed to uh, respond to suffering in the world. And I am questioning if this experience of joy is possible only through a kind of concentration that cuts off our awareness of others. Yeah. Are you, are you uh, committed enough to address the suffering in the world that if putting it down actually allowed you to address the suffering in the world, you'd be willing to put it down? Did that make sense? Because that's the question. Are we committed enough to really doing something to address suffering, our suffering, the world's suffering, that we're willing to do anything, including putting down our obsession, our interest, our sense of responsibility to the suffering? If that would really help and allow us to show up in a more wholehearted, creative way, responsible way, would we be willing to put it down? And then we have, it, the luck, lucky thing is we have examples like, you know, I mean, it's almost a cliche to point to the Dalai Lama, but, you know, here he is, you know, brought up as the person responsible for these people, and then decade after decade, cultural genocide, about millions probably, I don't know, certainly tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people murdered, and millions oppressed in Tibet, 
almost helpless in terms of helping them, but he seems like a pretty joyful person. And so, and he would definitely, I, mean, I think I can say with confidence, he would say, yeah, it is responsible to put it down and to touch joy. And then you can really pick it up. And the real question is, can we actually show up for suffering in a responsible and useful way if, we don't know how, if the heart doesn't know how to touch joy? Because we, the way we show up might not be helping as much as we think if we can't really touch joy. Yeah, first Tim and then Charlie. Thanks, Greta. My name's Tim. I just want to, um, the last comment brought a thought to mind. Um, of, uh, for me, the more still my mind gets, the seclusion becomes, at some point it, it becomes inclusion of uh, the, the groundless nature of being. So when you're contemplating another's suffering, there's no I and there's no them, it's just us. And that's, that's the, you know, not only does the joy give the heart a lot of resilience, it shifts the view, like Tim's talking about. So we're not stuck. That's the creative part. So when we reopen to the suffering, the very real practical level of suffering, but the view remains. So we're no, the mind is no longer dependent on seeing it in a divisive way. We can see suffering everywhere, including in the perpetrators. And that allows for a more useful, creative response. Thanks, Tim. Charlie, I think next, and then Megan. I appreciate your honesty, Greta. Um, I'm aware that uh, uh, when I'm watching my mind and uh, trying to bring joy forward, that I've got these core beliefs that are keeping me from having permission, one, and two, faith. Um, and so uh, for myself, being raised Catholic, I have a belief that even though I've come a long ways away from some of the beliefs, there's still all these hidden beliefs that when I make any mistake, that I have to suffer for it before, you know, I can be okay again. Like I have to neurally process it and make sure I've done everything that I can. And also that... Um, uh, it's survivor's guilt, you know, kind of, that uh, how I'm not, it's not right for me to feel good without, and so those are beliefs, and um, like tonight I was aware that when I listened to you, is you're giving me permission again, you know, to feel it, and from a skillful place, you know. Um, so for myself, uh, when we went through the, the 16 practices, or the, the 16 steps of the Buddha, and, and uh, go through and eventually, you know, calm, joy um and then ease mm -hmm. that You're was about the 16 steps from the, the, the 16 steps discourse yeah that was really useful for me to to and i realized for the first that was the first time i realized i have a dependable path to to feeling this way okay but i also it, i hadn't heard what you said tonight for the first time this first time i really got it that i need to i need to switch away from it and that you, you described this loop that I go through, which is, you know, focusing on the negative as a habit, you know, and I think it's based in those beliefs. Um, and so just a pleasure to have a light shown through that. Yeah, thanks, Charlie. And then Megan was going to go next. 
This was also somewhat in response to Greta, but um, I was thinking of I was thinking about how um, like responding to suffering. Those in my life, those have been some of the most I don't know most joyful, but surprisingly joyful times. I think um, is when you're put in a position to try to help someone and you realize, I think it helps you to discover sort of those good qualities in you and to feel them. And then also, um, I think, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, I think it's a gift to, to other people. I think being able to feel joy and to cultivate that, to sort of dwell in that, um, is one of the ways to help other people, sort of. So it's sort of like a two-way street where you, um, by cultivating joy, I think you're better able to to sort of be of help. And then also, um, I think you can receive joy a lot, too, through, like, reaching out and trying to relieve suffering. So. Yeah, thanks, Megan. Mm-hmm. Who'd like to go next? Have uh, time for maybe two or so people, maybe? Yeah, Judith, please. Uh, for the last uh, few weeks, I just keep picking up on anxiety, and I probably listening to too much news or <laughs> something. But um, it's just been bothering me a lot. And then uh, one night, when I went to bed, I felt all right. But then I woke up in the middle of the night, and I felt that anxiety again. So um, I had been reading about starving the hindrances feeding the factors so I thought okay I'm going to focus on something that a time when I felt secure and so something came to my mind and for a minute I felt really good thinking about it and then all of a sudden I just realized it was such (laughs) such an impermanent thing this object was not secure at all but then it was like my mind just let go of looking for secure and I just felt like there isn't any security. I'm totally okay with that. And so for about a day, I just felt really light and happy, and um, it was just uh, felt like using those skills really took my mind to a place that it really wanted to be, and it felt really good. But then the old habits come back um, and start looking for that security again. But actually talking about it brings it back again. Yeah. And I have that light feeling again. Yeah, and this is a thing, you know, the Buddha refers to it as the taste of freedom, the unforgettable taste of freedom. But as we do the practice, all of the different aspects of the practice, not just some particular part, we keep getting a little intuitive taste of freedom. And that taste is unforgettable in the mind. And you can... The more you practice, the more the mind remembers the taste at any time, the taste of freedom. It's not like it goes away because where would it go? You know, freedom, it's here or nowhere. And so it's, you know, it's, it's interesting right now, me saying that and Judith having said what she said, you might notice some resistance where I don't know it or I don't feel it, right? But you can observe that. What is it that is observing that doubt, let's call it? Is the part of the mind that sees the doubt 
is that doubt? So we want to we want to really notice when there is sort of pushback in our practice, you know, the force of habit, negativity, whatever doubt. We want to realize that that can be known and in the knowing of it we realize the knowing of it isn't that negativity, doubt, whatever it might be. Yeah, thanks Judith. Time for one more person. Yeah, please up front. Did you want to go too, Karen? If there's time we'll go to you too. I'm Dave. Uh, I've noticed that when I experience what I think is this joy and rapture in my practice, it's 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 not because I don't feel any of these things. It's because it's, I'm somehow not affected. I'm not suffering for feeling those things. And so when I hear the Buddha talk about the the, the quotes that that you gave, I it's to me it's not that they can't penetrate. It's just that they're there, but you take them in as experience that you don't have to judge or suffer for. Right, but they're not there. There's not a person suffering from it, like you just said. That's what's not there. The person oppressed by it. Yeah, time for Karen. You get the last word, Karen. I'm Karen. Um, I this is really interesting, and I appreciate your comment. Um, uh, I have found the continuity of mindfulness in the open, the more open way we're doing it, to be unbelievably challenging at this. Maybe it wouldn't. It would have been unbelievably challenging at any time, but right now with the current situation, I found it really challenging and um, so what happened for me yesterday that's so off the cushion I think this maybe it works off the cushion too so the I've struggled a lot um, with the events and then investigated off the cushion you know the circular nature of that process and just doing that gave me the energy in some ways I'm just putting this together now but to for example turn on some music to um, and eventually ended up dancing while I'm cooking which created joy how dare you at a time like this (laughs) right right Thank you. <laughs> I will never do it again. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, isn't that isn't that kind of how we feel? Yeah. And uh, it's like we we need to say it out loud in this sort of setting to realize how absurd it is. And the other piece, of course, is injustice didn't start in November fourth or whenever the election was. There have been serious oppression, injustice, and it's a little. What really shifted is some naivete and, and delusion has been removed. That's all that happened. Yes, and I think that's true, and because I felt that way after the election, but after the inauguration, the speed was, for me, really hard to, like the ground was gone. The right. ground was gone. But, but what I mean is like in other places, so this sort of tribal like, well, no, it's happening here. But why did it, it was happening lots of places. And here. And here. It's just a in a quieter, underhanded way. Yeah. So it's like 
this is the thing about we have to be in the world for the long haul. Not, I, not this idea that somehow we'll get to this tipping point where only good stuff are happening. And to do that, we need to be living with joy and love and these enlivening qualities. And then we'll know how to effectively be in the messiness. But we need to leave it here until next time. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Take a couple breaths together in silence. Appreciating the community, appreciating the wise comments, appreciating our spiritual ancestors, all the folks before us in their busy lives complicated lives. They did their practice as best they could. Generation by generation, these teachings have been passed down. And they land, in a sense, in our laps. It's our turn now in our complicated and busy lives to bring these teachings alive, to model them, to live them in a way that supports the next generations. So may this be so. Thanks, everyone, for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.